0: Welcome to Ipsa a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Sarah Burstein, Professor of Law at the University of Oklahoma College of Law, and Sarab Vishnubak, Professor of Law and Engineering at Texas A&M University. We will discuss their article, The Truth About Design Patents, which will be published in the American University Law Review. So, Sarah, Sarab, welcome back to the show for, for both of you. It's good to be here, Brian. Thanks. This is a really cool and provocative paper uh, all about the sort of myths and truths surrounding design patents. But I think a lot of listeners may not know what design patents are, or at least may not have a really kind of robust understanding of how they work. I wonder if we could start by you just kind of giving a basic description of what a design patent is, what they look like, and how they function.
1: Yeah. So design patents are a special type of patent that's been around since 1842. They're not new. Um, And what they do is they protect how stuff looks as opposed to how it works, right? So normally when you hear uh, the word patent, you think of a different kind of patent. Those are the ones we call utility patents that protect scientific, technical, engineering type things, right? How things work. But here we're just talking about how things look. They're a little bit different in some other ways. There's some different rules for claiming. We use drawings primarily as opposed to words. And there's different rules at the patent office as our paper discusses. Uh, they get the applications get treated a little bit differently in some relevant ways. Happy to go in that in any more detail that you want to.
0: Sure. Um, so like, you know, if someone were applying for a design patent, what would that look like? What would their expectations be? What would they do and what might they use it for?
1: So design patents protect designs for articles of manufacture. That's what the statute says. So say I come up with a cool new design for the shape of a chair, right? Um, you can get design patents for shapes, surface designs, or a combination of both. So I just come with a cool new shape for a chair. The way I'm going to do that is I file an application with the US Patent and Trademark Office that says, I claim an ornamental design for a chair, right? I have to identify that article. Uh, the design is applied to. And I say, I'm claiming the design for a chair as shown and described. And the shown and described means drawings. So I have to submit drawings uh, generally, but not always. That means six views, right? Like front, back, side, um, angle view, that kind of thing to show the whole shape. And then the examiner is going to do substantive examination like they would for utility patents but the standards for design patents are not particularly high Um, and so it's pretty hard for the examiner to reject a design patent application which is one thing that we go into in this paper but there is this sort of normal process where you get an examiner who is someone with an art and design background by the way they have expertise in the design area and they're going to look at the claim they're going to look at the prior art right the designs that came before that's all prior art means. And they're going to allow the application, if they can't find any reason, reject it.
0: So there's an awful lot of patent scholarship and and study out there. My understanding is there's somewhat less work in the area of design patents. To the extent the literature has kind of developed a perspective on how the design patent sort of body or market kind of functions and what it looks like from the perspective of applicants and design patent donors trying to use their design patents to accomplish various business goals. What, what kind of conclusions or observations historically have, have people made? So let me jump in with a a couple
2: of observations, and then I'll I'll point to some terrific work that Sarah has done in this area, and and, uh, she might want to draw insights from that in a moment as well. Um, A lot of the work that's being done on design patents now, and our paper is certainly an example of this, um, looks at lessons that have been learned, both analytical and theoretical on the one hand, and empirical and policy relevant on the other. Uh, have looked to the work that was done before on the utility patent side. And the question is frequently, to what extent do those findings about utility patents and those uh, reforms and those normative prescriptions uh, apply with equal force or greater or lesser force to to the design patent world? So there's a lot of sort of uh, comparative analysis within the U.S. utility patent and design patent regimes. And the reason why it's useful to take that sort of framing as a starting point, is for one thing, it's the same institution, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, that's doing it. So that's one thing you can hold constant. A lot of the uh, concerns about uh, institutional design, institutional capacity, Um, as Sarah mentioned, you know, the the design patent uh, regime has been around since 1842. That's just a handful of years uh, after the current incarnation of the the utility patent Uh, system came into existence, right, 1836. So There's a lot that can be held constant in that comparison. Now, some things that are importantly different between utility and design um, are the following uh, three or four things. And and I sort of take particular aim at these, both as a former patent office advisor and as a sort of law and econ uh, entrant into this literature. One is that design patents uh, last 15 years from the date of grant rather than 20 years from the date of filing as utility patents do. And as Sarah mentioned, they're much easier to get. They're much sort of uh, smaller in scope uh, in terms of the number of claims, these sorts of things. Uh, You can only have one claim, right? So um, what that means is that design patents will have a fixed term from whenever they're granted rather than a variable term from when they're granted because utility patents are pegged from the date of filing, not from the date of grant. And uh, utility patents, after they're granted, every four years, you need to pay money to keep them in force. Now, that's not a lot of money, uh, at least according to some scholars who would like to see what the frequency and the amount of maintenance fees raised as a culling mechanism on the utility patent side, but there just aren't design patent maintenance fees at all. So once you get the patent, it will last until expiration, which if you think thickets are a problem, if you think the overlapping proliferation of design rights is a problem, um, that's one fewer mechanism to, to correct for that. So that's another important distinction. A third, uh, and this is somewhat true of certain kinds of utility patents like software and high technology utility patents, design uh, rights tend to be pretty fast moving. Brian, your question uh, initially focused on uh, the business end of things. What does the market look like? What are the incentives? Well, the the market for designs is relatively faster moving than things like pharmaceutical drugs, which are reckoned in the decades. Uh, Investments happen quickly. The rights are sought and yet generally granted quite quickly. And to the extent that the patent was useful as a way of recovering your investment, that process is generally done pretty quickly. So if the patent lasts much longer than that, then it's going to be available and lying fallow to do mischief uh, for a longer proportion of its active life than it would be the case in most types of utility patents. So those are some observations that I think help us ground our analysis by comparison to the utility patent side where I've done a lot of work as well. Um, Sarah, any insights you want to add? To,
1: to? Yeah, absolutely agree with and emphasize all those points. One thing I've seen, so I've been studying design patents for coming on 12 years now. Um, and when I started, there was not a lot of literature, right? Um, design patents were this weird thing. There was sort of this steady trickle of um, pieces, kind of mentioning them here and there. Um, generally in a pretty negative way, right? That said, oh, design patents are awful. You know, they all get rejected. They all get invalidated. So we need a new system, right? Like we need to change this whole system. Um, So it's kind of a steady trickle of pieces like that. And then in 2008, the federal circuit, which hears all of the patent appeals, issued this decision called Egyptian Goddess where they changed the test for infringement. And this got the patent bar interested in design patents again. Um, I think it'd been sort of viewed as a, you know, a a playground for charlatans, right? For a long time, like those invention submission companies, right? They would get you a design patent instead of a quote unquote real patent. Um, And they kind of had a bad reputation in the bar. Uh, God has changed that, right? All of a sudden people started paying attention. I started to hear people um, talk about it more at, you know, bar events or things like that. And of course, what really uh, triggered, I think, the current wave of design patent scholarship was that billion-dollar verdict in Apple v. Samsung, right? Um, So in 2012, when that verdict came down, which of course has been reduced, uh, but still it's pretty big, um, uh, that got a lot of people in this field interested, right? It kind of convinced people that there is a there there. And so now there's a lot more attention, not just from the bar, but from scholars, um, certainly from businesses. So I think that it is more important than ever to make sure uh, that we get the facts right and that we all understand what's going on for real.
2: So Just real quick before we go on, um, this first paper is you know, part of what Sarah and I hope is, is an agenda of joint work that we'll be doing. And I have to say right now, playground for charlatans is something we have to work into a future title.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, duly noted. <laughs> well, so you kind of allude to an almost kind of conventional wisdom about the empirics of design patents. What was that or what is that conventional wisdom and, and where did it come from?
1: Well, that's what we wanted to look at in this paper, right? So I said, when I started, I keep, kept seeing these empirical assertions being made over and over and over. And when I looked at them, they were uh, citing old studies before the federal circuit, right? That court that decides these appeals was created in 1982, um, so coming up on 40 years there, right, which my students might think is a long time ago, but uh, maybe we might feel like it's not that long ago. Um, and I kept saying, why are, you know, in my head, I was looking at what was going on in the official gazette, right, the new designs that were coming out. I was looking, at what was going on in the courts, and it just totally didn't match these sort of dire pronouncements, right, that half of all of these patent action applications were getting rejected. And most of the ones, even if you go to court, it's going to be invalidated. And even if it's not invalidated, it's not going to be found in fringe. And I kept seeing these over and over and over. So part of this project was just, yeah, where do these come from, right? Doing really, I mean, literally just tracing back all these citation networks as far as we could to figure out what's going on, but then also to compare what was also going on today.
0: So to the extent you were able to figure that out, (laughs) <laughs> where, where were those numbers coming from? What were people basing those kinds of observations or claims or predictions on? And were they making a mistake?
2: Let me start with, uh, with a few of the studies. So there's, there's one paper, there are three papers we cite sort of as the, the root cause of this. Um, one is a paper by, by Walter, uh, another is a paper by the USPTO itself. And the third is a paper by, by Lindgren. And, and I'm re- referring to these authors colloquially just by the, by the last name. Um, so the, the Walter paper, you know, predates the Federal Circuit uh, by, by quite some, some time. The USPTO paper also uh, is fairly early on uh, in, the, in the sort of life cycle of, you know, modern 20th century design rights. The Walter paper is 1953, USPTO is 1979. Then uh, Lindgren uh, came along uh, a little bit later and that paper was sort of straddling the creation of the Federal Circuit. It came out after the Federal Circuit was uh, was, uh, created but the window within which the data was evaluated um, was all prior to the Federal Circuit's first design opinion. So in that sense, we still consider it pre-Federal Circuit case law. Now, as, as we'll mention uh, a little bit later, uh, Frankel uh, also published a paper a little bit later on referring back to some of this uh, work, and that ended up being you know the beginnings of a, a sustained game of telephone in which the findings from older uh, projects, which were already kind of suspect to begin with, were further, you know, convoluted and, and misinterpreted, and so on. Um, so these are the studies that, uh, that began. Now, apart from being pre-federal circuit case law, which even if they were valid at the time would make them obsolete at best, right? Because we're living now in a different uh, world, a different uh, appellate regime, and, and so on. Uh, even if that were the case, um, we would be skeptical because of because of how old they are. And so as a result, we went and and looked more deeply at the findings. Those two were based on highly selected uh, cases. There's there's no account taken of the selection effects uh, in those papers. And the numbers themselves are are pretty small. The statistical power that uh, one might expect from claims that are so bold and brazen about the, the, the dire state of the world Um, you would think would have stronger empirical support, even on its own terms. And in our opinion, it it didn't. And so that's where these these sort of things started. And they, you know, you could call it most, you could say two-thirds, you could say over half, you could say close to 70%, right? There are a lot of different ways to slice what is a pretty unreliable number. So uh, our uh, task here was to sort of key all of those different articulations to a few origin stories, and then hopefully to debunk the origin stories. Um, and so that was our, our sort of starting point. for these.
1: Yeah, I'll add that to some degree, some of these became so much the common wisdom that people were repeating them without citation. Uh, so there's some places in the paper where we're like, we think this is what this person was talking about, right? Um, and kind of show you, I, you know, we, we had to kind of guess, right, make some educated guesses, but we tried to be really transparent about that. Uh, but it's just remarkable how how durable some of these assertions have been.
0: So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of how you went about investigating these prior studies and the sort of received wisdom conclusions that sort of derived from them and what your findings had to say and how they informed your understanding of, where those initial studies came from and what they meant and how we ought to think about the design patent landscape today.
1: So initially it was literally just doing a deep dive in the footnotes, right? Um, just doing a collection of who said this, right? Who said each of these things? Who did they cite? Who did they cite, right? Doing these whole spider webs. At some point, I, at one point I had a chart that literally did look sort of like a spider web, right? Of all these different sources um, that are really clearly enunciated before how they all connected and, or where we thought maybe those notes were, and just going back through them. And then, um, as we said, finding the actual cases, really digging into what did they say. And in some cases, so with Lindgren, for example, he was really upfront about this is not robust statistics, right? This is not, you know, really strong. And people still cited him as if he was. And as far as um, our findings, what we actually found, Sarah, you want to take that one?
2: yeah, absolutely. So um, the question of right we we addressed each of these uh, these design myths in in turn, right? The half of all design patent applications are rejected. Uh, the second is that most asserted design patents are invalidated in litigation. and the third, most litigated design patents are not found in the fringe. Um, the problem with the first one, and this is the really the most widespread and pernicious one. Uh, I remember seeing the chart, that Sarah alluded to just a moment ago. and thinking this is like, you know, Charlie Day trying to track down Pepe (laughs) Silva. So uh, that that really does boil down, first of all, to a misunderstanding. Um, the, The way in which that data came about was a time trend of all the patents that had been Uh, that had been granted over time by the USPTO historically. There are annual statistics available about this. Now, half of all design patent applications are rejected. sounds like of all the applications that are filed today or over a certain period of time representative of the modern world, half of them are granted, the other half are rejected. You can sort of quibble about the number. What this was saying is, uh, this time trend, is that half of all the patents that have been granted ever were granted in the last 40 years which means that the other half uh, were granted prior to the last 40 years what that shows is an accelerating time trend right but that's not the same thing as saying that half of all design patents are granted and half are rejected it's simply half of all patents ever granted were granted in the last 40 years a very different empirical proposition so that's and i Even without looking at the time trend, even without looking at the the paper, I was a little skeptical about that finding just a priori because how in the world could somebody know something like that without having access to underlying data about applications that are filed and granted, as well as applications that are filed but not granted? The second of those two things, applications, design applications that are filed and never issue as design patents, are not published. The USPTO doesn't make that information public. So where is this person getting this data? And why is everybody citing to it You know, un, uncritically? And you know a lot of the people who cite to it, not for nothing, but um, were citing to it for completely different reasons. It was sort of this in passing, by the way, this is what's going on. Now, our point is completely different. But when somebody super influential and, and well-regarded does that, that ends up being the node for future citations, right? That's the familiar source that everybody can turn to. So that's how the, the, the myth got repeated. And again, there's, there's this game of um, uh, telephone that was going on. But for our purposes, the finding was we think most design applications are granted. And here's what that's based on. Um, it took a little bit of, uh, sort of inference from some data that's publicly available in the aggregate by the USPTO. We looked at annual performance and accountability reports, the annual reports, going back several decades from the USPTO. And um, they tell you how many applications were granted this year, denied this year, and filed this year. And if you sort of look at that year over year and look at the differences between them, you can back out a number that's sort of, you know, here's how many were filed but not disposed of and left over. And if you make certain assumptions about the average pendency of, uh, of design applications, which the USPTO, again, provides in the aggregate, you can make some reasonable estimates. But we're very clear. The best we can do is a reasonable estimate, and it's also the best anybody else can do. So to say with confidence that the USPTO grants only half of all design applications is, is a little bit silly. Um, so that was our first big finding. Um, as far as the... Uh, Validity in litigation uh, and infringement in litigation findings, Um, again, we have similar caveats. Uh, We can tell you what we found, and what we find is that most design patents are uh, found valid, uh, or I should say are found not invalid, based on the uh, the, the statutory presumption of validity, and uh, most are found infringed, a very large share, in fact, are found uh, infringed. And we do this sort of as a trend over time. The proportion changes, but not by that much. Um, Now, it's on the order of 80, 90, 98%, depending on what forum you're in, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, the Federal Courts, the International Trade Commission, and so on like that. But again, the big caveat here is there are massive selection effects uh, as to what goes into litigation, what doesn't settle, what goes all the way to judgment on a validity question, what goes all the way to judgment on an infringement question. And so for these sorts of things, we can tell you the figure and we can sort of appropriately cabin where we got that number and what to do with it. The important thing is what not to do with it. Do not take this as an indicator of the health of the design system, Mm -hmm. nor should you take it as an indication of um, what a given design patent plucked at random in the world is likely to face. Unless and until it winds up in litigation and goes all the way through, because the selection effects are quite strong, and it's not clear a priori which way they cut. So, you know, we want to correct uh, the empirical misapprehensions in the literature and in the, in the sort of popular culture, but we also want to replace it with something that's not equally brazen and equally unsupportable. The answer to this confident wrongness is measured correctness, not overconfident uh, corrections,
0: either. I, I mean, I have to say, on one level, reading your paper, it was it was heartening to think that scholarship could have such extensive knock-on effects in in future work, but a, a little disheartening to realize that it doesn't seem like those knock-on effects really depend heavily on the accuracy of the underlying work, or that that anyone seems to have been checking the the actual sources that they were relying on.
1: And there were people who pointed out some of these issues before, right? We're certainly not the first ones to notice this. Some people did say, hey, those are old studies, right? Um, And again, at least Lindgren was pretty measured in his actual writing. But yeah, I I also want to note that one of these papers was a student paper. So if you think your student paper doesn't matter, um, it matters, right? Please read this paper before you publish a note about design patents. (laughs)
2: That is true. And and look, I mean, there's been uh, a fair amount of discussion, uh, not in the design or even the IP literature, but just generally in the legal academy about um, whether peer review or some something resembling or approaching peer review might be valuable. Um, I think, Brian, you've written uh, about both the costs and the benefits of, of that. Um, I think this would certainly be an example of how you know, some peer review would probably have caught the more egregious examples at the, at the outset. It's not clear that the conventional wisdom wouldn't have emerged anyway, because that's a much more organic and, and sort of sociocultural phenomenon. But uh, it certainly is our hope that now that it is what it is, we can correct uh,
0: what it might become. Well, so to the extent there are takeaways from this paper about sort of what we can and do know, about the design patent landscape. What will you say about that? You know, what are sort of the big picture like facts about design patent grants and enforceability that people ought to be replacing the kind of old incorrect conventional wisdom with? And sort of where do you see this? Kind of study and body of work going next? In other words, what should people be looking to do in the future?
1: I think the biggest takeaway from this is that we need to be careful with some of the reform proposals that are floating around. Um, You know, a lot of people have said design patents are terrible because they're too hard to get and they, you know, get killed in litigation. So we need a new system, right? I think this research if nothing else, right, um, calls those into significant doubt. Um, and I think we could disagree, first of all, whether um, those critiques are actually critiques, right? Are they, are they uh, features or bugs, right? Um, one might actually value a system where it was hard to get design patents and easy to invalidate bad ones, right? We can debate what bad means. Um, but I think, you know to the extent that you're just saying, design patents are weak, design patents always lose, ergo, we need copyright right, or ergo we need a European-style registration system. It's just not supported by the evidence, right, even even assuming, which I don't personally, right, um, that those would be good reasons to switch.
2: And I would also add, you know, in the uh, discussion pertaining to the validity uh, question, the grant rate and these sorts of things in particular, uh, figures one and two, we, we make a point Of different measures, there are different ways to measure success. uh, If that's what you want to do, and if that's what you want to sort of use as your evidence for for reform. Uh, One big thing is that there is not a standard, settled consensus on how best to measure uh, success. So you could do it um, uh, as a matter of time, right, fluctuating uh, over time. Uh, moving average over X number of years, based on number of you know applications filed and number of uh, design patents ultimately granted, as a share of that, you'd have to account for things like abandonments and um, and other reasons for non-grant, things like that. That's one way to do it. Another is to measure success in design applications in getting the patent issued independently of time. You can do it as a function of the volume of applications filed in a given year as the number of applications filed goes up, there's a a very weak correlation, but it trends downward, which suggests that um, when there's more uh, stuff coming through the patent office doors, um, they're gonna be inclined to grant less of it. That could be a function of just, as these rights proliferate, the quality of a given application goes down. That's one hypothetical explanation for it. Another is institutional capacity. Um, patent office is just not staffed to deal with you know, certain volumes beyond a certain point. And so they might err on the side of uh, uh, over exclusion or, or whatever the case might be. So you know, this is a literature that's begun to be fleshed out on the utility patents side. The USPTO's chief economist, the UKIP office, and academic researchers have done this work for about the last five to eight years and, and have found some pretty interesting and useful things we're just now starting to get the data for it on the design side. So that's one big piece, but the work still needs to be done. The analysis, the theoretical frameworks need to be developed uh, because the law is different as we, as we have it. So that's one big sort of meta uh, takeaway that I would hope folks have from this paper. A second is that the reason our conclusions have to be measured is that our data is limited and there's quite a lot more data on the utility patent side because there is, more transparency. There's pre-grant publication. There's considerably more scrutiny that's brought to bear on the patent office's work. On the utility side, I think having something similar. We mentioned this in the paper. Uh, pre-grant publication. The timing could be something we argue about. Um, would be some, you know, uh, at least something worth considering, uh, so that both the world at large knows here's what people are planning to get design rights on. And if something doesn't ever issue, um, people are never going to know about it. that seems hard to justify uh, mm-hmm. if there are good you know uh, proposals in support of it, uh, they haven't gotten the the sort of airing that they certainly deserve uh, because at the moment it seems like a pretty clear-cut case in favor of making more data available. and and that's something that uh, I think both Sarah and I as empiricists would value but that, uh, <laughs> would also be valuable to the to the policymaking community and to the business community uh, in the world of design.
1: I'll just add that this question of whether to public publish design applications has come up in other jurisdictions and in international comparative discussions of design rights, right? Not all countries have design patents, but a lot of them have similar systems, design registration, whatnot. The standard justification I've heard for not publishing applications is... Uh, quote-unquote piracy, right? That someone's going to steal your design. And, but like we say in the paper, um, there's ways to deal with that, right? If you've got a meritorious design and you get a patent, we could give you pre-issuance remedies, something to sort of protect or insulate you from that. But if your design isn't patentable, then people should be free to copy it anyway. Uh, so I'm not convinced that that's a very compelling reason to keep the system as it is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sarah, Sarab, thanks so much for coming back on the show, talking about this great paper. Uh, I look forward to reading your work in the area in the future.
1: Thanks, Thanks, Brian.
3: That's absolutely nuts. On land, in the air, and now we take you on the sea. On land, in the air, and now we take you on the sea. Now this may be a silly song, but it's the latest band, and every day we hear them say, Modern design to the crisis, madam. song once more and when it comes around to where the whistle blows we'll stop and you make the proper sound on land in the air and now we take you on the sea on land in the air and now we take you on the sea now you're all doing very well, you make us mighty proud. But this time give it all you've got. Modern design, let's sing it loud on land. In the air. And now we take you on the sea. Now us. <coughs> now you. Now us. <coughs> Together. <coughs>